0: Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut with your host, Rebecca Coombs. Welcome to Episode 4 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Today, I am joined with Dr. Norala Jacoby. And she is arguably Australia's leading SIBO specialist. And I'm so lucky to have her in the same country as me. Dr. Jacoby graduated from Bastia University in 1998 with a doctorate in naturopathic medicine. And she's practiced as a primary care physician in Montana for seven years before arriving in Australia. Lucky for us. Um, And she's still a licensed physician in the U.S., She is a national and international speaker and also the creator of the SIBO biphasic diet, which is what I use in my SIBO cookbooks. Um, Dr. Jacoby is the medical director of SIBO Test, an online SIBO testing service, and also has a busy practice in northern New South Wales in Australia. So Dr. Jacoby and I today talk about testing and why we need to spend three hours doing the SIBO test. What I love about uh, Dr. Narala Jacoby's approach is that she talks a lot about how whilst you, you do need to follow protocols for the SIBO treatment, it's about taking a very individualised approach. I'm interested in the differences between methane and hydrogen-dominant SIBO. And I know that many listeners see that they might have a methane-dominant initial diagnosis, but then after some treatments that their hydrogen actually increases. So we talk about actually why and how that happens, along with the differences in the symptoms for hydrogen versus methane-dominant SIBO. Also, Nerala has uh, different treatment options depending on whether you are hydrogen or methane dominant, and she goes through the herbs that she uses for um, both of those uh, dominant SIBO conditions. I ask her about die-off. Does it actually occur? Is it real? And she talks to me about what it is and how it occurs. There's another condition called CFO, small intestinal fungal overgrowth. And we discuss, you know, how does one actually test for that? And then what are the treatment options? And can you have SIBO and CFO concurrently? Dr. Narala Jacoby specializes in treating the more difficult patients. So the people that are reacting to everything and often people that have been seeing another practitioner and they uh, are kind of at their wits end and they come to Dr. Jacoby because she is so experienced. So we talk around issues with histamine, oxalates, salicylates, why this happens, how she treats it and most importantly, how you can prevent it from occurring. What are the flags or the symptoms that you should be looking for today to prevent yourself getting into that state? We go through the SIBO biphasic diet. Now this is the diet that I've used in my cookbooks and I myself followed when I was being treated for SIBO. So she talks about the phases of it and um, why she doesn't particularly or personally feed bacteria when she is treating her patients. So that's very interesting. And her end goal with her patients is to be off SIBO treatment. She does not want this to be a lifelong sentence. So the restricted diet and the treatment she believes should be temporary, although temporary may last for a few months for some people and a few years for other people, but ultimately her objective is to get you back to health. And then we talk about things like probiotics, prebiotics, the migrating motor complex, which is such an important part of keeping yourself SIBO-free, and she discusses what herbs she uses to support the migrating motor motor complex. And finally, a piece that I've just really resonated with was Dr. Nirala Jacoby talks about the importance of taking responsibility for your own health. I hope you enjoy episode four with Dr. Nirala Jacoby.
1: Welcome to the show, Nirala. Thanks, Rebecca. It's really uh, great to be here.
0: Yeah, and, and just reading through your bio, like you are just so busy. You've got so much on.
1: <laughs> this year it seems to be, yes. There's, there's a lot of SIBO related. Um, conferences and talks and everybody seems to be very interested in the topic these days, which is great. Which is wonderful. And being,
0: uh, Australia's, uh, one of Australia's leading specialists on SIBO, there's, uh, it's, there's no surprise that you are in high demand for your knowledge on all things SIBO. So I'd love to talk about your journey, um, and how you ended up Becoming Australia's leading specialist on SIBO. Like what got you interested
1: in it in the first place? Well, that's a great question because you know, as a naturopathic doctor, we do focus on the gut as a primary target of treatment for not just digestive disorders, but for many different disorders. And so I've always had a great interest in treating the gut. And, you know, one of the naturopathic tenets is That the gut is the root of the tree. And if you treat the root, then the tree can be healthy. So even, even when I practiced in Montana, I just had a large practice of digestive difficult patients that would come in. And there was always a subset that at the, this was before we really knew anything about SIBO. This was in the early uh, 2000s, late 90s, um, that I really started to uh, focus on digestive disorders. And this was before I knew SIBO. So I would treat dysbiosis and I would treat different digestive disorders and would get good results. But there was always a subset of patients that just did not respond to treatment or they would have relapses. And it just didn't make sense to me. So when I went to the American Association of Naturopathic Physician conference in 2011, this is something I go to every year. It's um, in America, obviously, and I listened to Dr. Seebecker and Dr. Steven Sandberg-Lewis give their first talk on SIBO to our uh, naturopathic community. And I was just really completely dumbfounded that I'd never heard of this. And it answered so many questions for me of why some patients just do not re- respond to some of the very common products or dietary advice that we give to patients when they suffer from very certain digestive disorders. So that made a lot of sense for, for me. And then from then on, I was just hooked in terms of, wow, this is just like a brand new uh, kid on the block and I need to figure out everything there is to know about SIBO. And as, we, as the research extends, I'm just so thrilled to have this as a possibility, as an underlying cause for so many of my patients, because as I've mentioned, the gut is so related to so many different disorders. So I see people that have maybe their primary concern is they get frequent colds or flus, or they have an autoimmune disorder. And Uh, or they have joint pain, or they have uh, mood disorders. And oftentimes SIBO links that all together. It's an underlying cause in so many different disorders. So that's very, very helpful. And the more you know about a condition, obviously, the more you start to really kind of see it in lots of different places. Definitely, and so how do you treat? Uh, or sorry, how do
0: you test your patients for SIBO when they turn up and present with symptoms that are common to SIBO? What what do you do to commence that testing process?
1: Well, that was one of the reasons I started SIBOtest.com, which is an on, again, it's an online testing facility where practitioners can sign up or um, patients can order the, the breath tests themselves. But the reason for that was really because I the way i understood it and the way it was uh the way i learned how to test for SIBO was different than what some of the breath tests were offering. labs were offering here and so i just decided to do it exactly as dr pimentel and the SIBO center in portland were doing it and so i um, i basically set up my own testing facility here in australia and started to offer this service to other practitioners. So it's pretty easy for me now when I have a patient to just recommend SIBO testing. And we have a very quick turnaround time because of that, because we just, we're right here. So that's uh, very helpful. But basically, the testing. Assumes that you have bacteria in the small, in the, in the first part of your small intestine where they're not meant to be. And bacteria that are there are fermenters, they ferment fibers. So if we give, if we um, prescribe a test to a patient, what they would do is basically have a day of a very restrictive diet to kill the bacteria a little bit. Then, They fast overnight and in the morning they would commence testing, which is uh, drinking a test substance and then capturing samples of their breath every 20 minutes for three hours. And then when we analyze it, we can see where the hydrogen or the methane gas occurs in those samples. Now hydrogen gas and methane gas are not produced by humans, they're produced by bacterial fermentation. And some of that is normal if it's in the large intestine. but if we capture it in the first eighty to 90 minutes of the person having drank the substrate, then we can be fairly sure that we've captured bacterial fermentation in the first part of the intestines.
0: And why why does the test take three hours if you're looking at the say the first eighty or 90 minutes?
1: That's a good question because you know, and that's really subject or or up to debate in the in the scientific community. Um, there there are people that have very very disrupted peristalsis or migrating motor complex in the small intestine, and so they will not ha- uh, their substrate will not reach in uh, to the large intestine within two hours, right? So. What we do is, again, we copy sort of what the SIBO center does in Portland. And so they've extended it for three hours. Very often we uh, we see a rise much earlier than that. And classically, we would expect a rise within the first 80, like 90 minutes is really what we're hoping to gauge. Now, methane is a little different because uh, methane is produced by a different organism that's sort of not really a bacteria but more of an ancient species that's been with humans for a long time. But what happens with methane producers is that they actually use the hydrogen from the hydrogen fermenters to produce methane. So we can see that pretty much throughout the digestive tract. And we're starting to think of methane producers a little bit differently, especially if we see that throughout the testing period and not just a rise in the first 90 minutes or so. And is
0: that why some people, when they have, uh, they have their initial test, they might be dominant with hydrogen. They go through some SIBO, uh, treatment and then they retest and their methane has, is, has increased. Is that why that methane can increase that once they're, they're eating up hydrogen? Is that how it works?
1: It's actually kind of the other way around, but you're on the right track there. (laughs) Yeah. So because if you're killing, you know, like if, if we think that, that methanogens or organisms, which is basically methanobrevibacter smithii, it's usually one species that produces methane. If they're um, present in the small intestine, and let's say you have a test result that reads as a high methane, but very, very low, Um, or you know single digit sort of hydrogen all throughout the test and then you're treating for methane and you're retesting and all of a sudden the methane is lower and the hydrogen is up that's because you've killed the actual methanogens that would otherwise use the hydrogen to produce methane so that's pretty common so we do sort of see a bit of a waffling back and forth sometimes when we do retest and you do want to retest if you're patient, if if you're a practitioner listening to this, or if you're a patient that's kind of uh, educating your own practitioner, um, you want to kind of, you know, you want to go through your treatment. And then if you're 80, 90 percent better, you can just go on maintenance and use prokinetics, which we'll get into, I think, a little bit later. Um, Or if you're not If you're not 80% better, you probably want to retest to ensure that you're actually making progress with uh, methane or hydrogen reduction. Otherwise, you need to change your treatment.
0: Mm, that's so interesting. And are there symptoms? Uh, do the symptoms change depending on whether you've got hydrogen or methane dominance?
1: Well, you know, classically, what we see with methane dominant SIBO um, is constipation, and that we know also from research that if, if at laborato- poor laboratory animals or if their digestive tract is infused with methane gas, it it is instantaneously constipating. So we do know that the gas itself is very disrupting to the normal movement of the large intestine as well. So, um, you know, that's, that's classically what we see. With hydrogen, you can see either constipation or diarrhea or sort of a on and off, uh, sometimes a day of uh, of constipation or couple day no bowel movement followed by a couple days of loose stools. And I think one of the reasons why we see really alternating patterns uh, with hydrogen, but also sort of generally, I mean, I've had a few cases of methane that were dominant, that were not constipated. And we can't always just say it's just SIBO. This might just be that you have also, uh, fungal overgrowth in the small intestine or the large intestine, you might have as well a, an overgrowth of uh, gram-negative bacteria in the large intestine. So typically, when we see SIBO that's very classically in the small intestine, but it's not resolving as quickly, you might want to consider doing a stool test to, to ensure that there isn't some other level of dysbiosis in the large intestine as well. Mm, yeah, I think that's great advice.
0: And so, the treatment for hydrogen or methane—are they different? Do you treat them differently?
1: Um, yes, we we can treat them differently. Sometimes what I do is I start with, I mean, you know, I I talk to practitioners that are on all sides of the spectrums. I talk to GPs, I talk to naturopathic practitioners. Um, So I have sort of my herbal treatments. And then you also have conventional treatments, which includes the use of antibiotics, some of which I really uh, think are a great idea. And some some of it I really don't indoor or well not so much indoors but I can't I don't see the need of it because I think our herbs use when you use them correctly they work really really well. So I don't like to use broad spectrum antibiotics or recommend the use of them uh, just because you can get into more problems down the road with with uh, fungal overgrowth which you don't really get into with the herbs. Mm, that's interesting. Did you want me to go into like sort of specifics of treatment? Yeah, or? I'd like to. Yeah.
0: I think that would be handy for the listeners to understand, you know, specifically how how to do it. Mm.
1: First of all, I will say that the best results, and I can say this with really a lot of conviction in, in doing this for five years now, is uh, work with a practitioner that's very well versed in the nuances of SIBO treatment. Because... Even though we have protocols, I really want to emphasize that I don't just follow protocols. I always individualize each treatment to each patient because we are are all different and we have different needs and we have different presentations. And even though my herbs may stay the same, I might rotate them more or I might add um, other supportive uh, nutrients or I might treat something uh, that may seem totally unrelated, but is related. So I do encourage your listeners to seek out somebody that's very uh, that's had a lot of experience of SIBO treatment under their belt. On SIBOTest.com, there is a database of practitioners that we do endorse that have done testing, that have done some further training, and that understand the the complexity of SIBO treatment. So, but generally speaking, if you have a hydrogen uh, dominant case. So meaning that your breath test comes back and within in 90 minutes, and some practitioners extend that to 120 or even three hours. And this is, you know, we're just a testing service and we can recommend, but practitioners can interpret that as they see fit. Um, so for hydrogen case, we often recommend berberine containing herbs, and that might be Oregon grape root or philodendron. Or um, uh, berberis vulgaris. So there's a there's a whole probably six or seven herbs that we frequently recommend, and you need to go fairly fairly strong with those herbs. And again, I can't really recommend uh or give you dosages because it depends on where you get your herbs from and what complexes you use also essential oils like um oil of oregano and uh thyme oil and th- those would be helpful clove oil and cinnamon etc and what i like about those is that they also tend to be very effective in in the treatment of CFO, which is small intestine fungal overgrowth and one small study um, showed that 63% of patients that tested positive for SIBO also have cFO So that's a pretty st- big number. And I often see people, when I treat treat my patients for SIBO, the people that respond the strongest to the killing phase, meaning the classic die-off symptoms, very often have um, have this have CIFO as a as a really strong component of their case. So berberine herbs are more for hydrogen. Um, Ali very strong extract of garlic um, without the FODMAP com- component of garlic. I use um, often I use a product called Alimax for methane dominant and you you know you have to dose that fairly high. And you would do that for Uh, about six weeks, four to six weeks, we can expect a drop in gases. And it's fairly predictable with methane each course of of Alimax might drop at about 30 to 50 parts per million, and uh, it's less predictable with the other herbs. So so those are your two categories. I mean, we have a lot more in our arsenal when it comes to herbal medicine, but I'd say the berberine herbs are very classically used for hydrogen and your um, garlic extract for methane.
0: You talked a little bit about die-off, and there's I've I have read online some great debate about whether die-off Actually exists. Uh, do you do you believe that there is such a thing as die-off, and that people do experience symptoms when this
1: when the bacteria is is dying off in their um, intestinal system? Um, well, you know, have, being a practitioner, I've been in practice for almost twenty years. I can pretty much get you know, in my experience, it's not even debatable whether or not or not it exists. It definitely um, it does exist, and some patients. Uh, have it stronger than others. And I think there are reasons for that. So one of the components in a bacterial cell wall, especially like particularly the gram negative bacteria, which uh, are quite prevalent in SIBO, uh, is a substance called LPS, right? So LPS is just part of the bacteria. And when that bacteria dies and it releases LPS, and let's say you do have leaky gut, as an underlying factor as well, then you're going to have more absorption of this quite, uh, I mean, it's one of the most strongest uh, triggers of inflammation that we know. So people that have die-off can feel 48 hours or even longer quite flu-like or uh, brain fog, achy, quite sick. And so this is one of the reasons I've actually developed the biphasic diet to minimize some of that. But, you know, I've had people not have any reactions at all. And that might be because they don't have leaky gut. They just have SIBO, right? And SIBO is associated with permeability that is is abnormal of the digestive tract, but not everyone has that. And then the other factor is I do think that the die-off or what we would... More scientifically called the Herxheimer reaction, which is just again you you're you're kind of reacting to the uh, byproducts that are being released in the process of dying, so fungal elements tend to be sometimes stronger in their die off provoking um, mechanism in my experience,
0: and I think that leads nicely into cFO, which is small intestine fungal overgrowth is there a way for that to be tested for
1: not really we don't have any you know like uh, we, i mean we could test carbon dioxide but we don't really and there's no method to do that usually uh, candida or fungal elements they don't they do ferment as well but they uh they produce more carbon dioxide and that's just very difficult to to get an accurate measure in the way we we measure with our breath trackers. And also, you know, if we were to do, let's say, candida antibodies or stool tests, you're still not getting a clear picture as to w- where they're located. So I often do, you know, this is the beauty of the natural protocol, because by definition, you're treating SIFO as well. You're doing it with diet and you're doing it with the herbs. So I like that approach because it's been really helpful for, for many, many of my patients. And is
0: there, do you aim to treat one first over the other or, or because it's a natural protocol, do you feel that you're getting both of them at the same time?
1: Well, the killing phase, you know, is definitely both at the same time because you're using herbs and essential oils and stuff that has effect for both. But then you have sort of like a like a rebalancing after usually after I treat for SIBO and CIFO, I also start incorporating probiotics and other nutrients that help to stimulate the immune system and help to upreg well, upregulate the intestinal mucosa and immune system so that we start prevention as well. And that can be it's not really specific to SIFO or SIBO. And this is where I start to really individu- individualize for each of my patients because not everyone needs that either. But, you know, I think that, like, let's say you're a conventional practitioner and you're only using rifaximin. Um, rifaximin is the the antibiotic of choice for hydrogen dominant uh, SIBO. It's very, very effective. And for uh, methane dominant, it's not as effective. And so they often incorporate another antibiotic called neomycin and some other practitioners use metronidazole or, you know, a plethora of other antibiotics, which can then kill off some of the other beneficial bacteria in the large intestine. And so breeding uh, or laying the groundwork for breeding more fungal species, because if if you eradicate beneficial bacteria that are meant to be there in the large intestine that are keeping yeast in check or fungal elements in check, you are, uh, you know, it's it's very easy to get a fungal overgrowth. So a lot of practitioners and, and holistic or integrative GPs do a combination where they use rifaximin and use Alimax or use essential oils or re- oil of oregano to prevent some of this fungal overgrowth, or even use nystatin, which is a pretty common or prescription antifungal. That's not too bad. It works pretty well as well.
0: Mm, and. Can you have SIFO without having SIBO? It sounds like the two uh, commonly go hand in hand, but can you have the fungal overgrowth without the bacterial overgrowth?
1: You, you know, I think you can. It's It's difficult to know that for sure from a scientific basis unless you do a small intestinal aspirate which is just a sampling of the fluids in the small intestine. But we could reason through it, meaning that let's say that you have somebody that's been on proton pump inhibitors for years, right? Proton pump inhibitors are probably one of the most commonly prescribed medicines in um, in um doctor's offices today, especially in America. This is an acid blocker. So acid blockers work by um stopping the production of hydrochloric acid which is your stomach acid so if you do that for years on end um you create a real ph or acid base balance in your small intestine when and fungal elements are they just love a warm moist environment whether that's behind your fridge or inside of your gut right so they if it's a, a moldy shower that's warm and moist and dark um and the same thing in your gut so it's they're just opportunistic infections that are in small amounts, not harmful. But if you are overrun with fungal elements, then yes, it becomes a problem. So I could see a scenario where that where that happens, although the use of proton pump inhibitors has definitely been linked to an increase in SIBO. So I can't, tell you whether or not I've ever treated someone who's just had SIFO because I've just treated them and they got better. So I've sometimes treated people that had very classic symptoms of SIBO, but their test was negative. So either the test was just negative because no test is always just positive. There's always some false negatives um, or it it required a different substrate to really pick up the bacteria or it was just SIFO, you know, Mm. so um, I'm still a naturopath where I, if I have somebody that presents with very classic symptoms, and my treatment is harmless, I might just um, give a little trial to see how they respond, and if they respond, I carry on.
0: Yeah, great, and it, and I guess it comes back to that individual approach where you're looking at the individual and what they're own unique body requires rather than taking a kind of carte blanche approach of, well, I'll try this on
1: everybody and hope for the best. Exactly, because you know over the last i'd say at least the last two to three years I've um, seen some of the sickest patients I've ever seen in my life because I specialize in SIBO. and people that have restricted themselves to five foods right they've completely painted themselves into a corner when it comes to foods because they the more you restrict, the more you react to everything that is uh, put before you, so I had to really negotiate and and navigate through. Reactions and and kind of coaxing people back into uh, more of a varied diet and and so it's it gets really tricky once you go down that road. And you, um, from what I understand, you do see
0: uh, quite often some more challenging cases with patients that are uh, that their perhaps their own practitioner is finding it difficult or challenging to treat them and and isn't sure why they're sick. So can you talk a little bit about the types of uh, more difficult or challenging cases that you see commonly?
1: I'd say the most commonly referred patient would be one who reacts to everything that they're given, right? So whether that's herbs or um, certain foods, they become... So if we think about how that develops is, uh, let's say they have SIBO and they started to... uh, you know, really look for answers and they've looked for through all the online stuff about paleo and then it, it was bone broth and then they became more sensitive to histamines and then they became more sensitive to salicylate. So they, they're they without really ever addressing the SIBO and the SIFO, they've just become more and more sensitized to foods. And what happens there is that we know with dysbiotic bacteria, so for actually I'm not explaining that very well, let me just back up. So Foods have natural components, or especially plant foods, have components in them that the plant uses to defend itself against invaders and pests and so forth. And these are, for example, histamines or oxalates, right? These are naturally found in green leafy vegetables. A lot of different vegetables have salicylates, and the most the average person will never know any difference. Plant foods are very healthy for us. So, but when you become very overrun by uh, either bad bacteria or fungus, you actually become more and more sensitive to these salicylates in particular. They're very, you know, little spiky kind of substance, like, or, or components that can actually do uh, some damage in a very sensitized digestive tract. So I find the most challenge that I have is with people that are um, that are very reactive to histamine, which is uh, a normal. It's normally found in in certain even healthy foods like spinach. Uh, that's very high in uh, foods that have been sitting around for a lot, for a while or cured meats or tin fish, that kind of thing. So histamine, uh, we know it can induce allergies, but in foods, it can cause a lot of other symptoms like bloating, like swelling, like itching, like insomnia. And so they start to react to that. Then they react to oxalates, which are also little tiny sort of crystal-like little substances in especially leafy green vegetables. And then next thing you know, they can only eat gluten-free bread and chicken, right? So it becomes very challenging. So they have now really selectively fed only a handful of bacteria um, in their large intestine. So what happens anytime you start to put in either herbs, most herbs are very high in salicylate. So these people will always react to the berberines and the alimax and everything else. And um, you also, uh, you know, can't really, like every time they introduce certain foods, they react. So those are the most challenging, I will tell you. And that's, that just takes time and, uh, minuscule doses. And I use homeopathics and I use desensitization and I use a lot of different techniques to get these people, um, at least out of what I call out of the basement, right? So get them on the first, uh, first or second stair. So that at least I can see the kitchen door. Um, and then it takes a little while to turn these cases around sometimes. Mm, And is there anything that people can do to help prevent themselves from ending up in that situation? I'd say the big alarm bells that would go off for me is like you become more sensitive. You're eating, you've restricted your food already. Next thing you know, you're starting to react to the food um, that you've you've restricted yourself to, right? That means you're becoming less diverse in your microbiome which is what's hap- what's meant to happen in your digestive tract. And there's this common misconception that you can just, um, well, let me actually back up. So we're talking about two different conditions. We're talking about SIBO, which is a condition of abnormal bacterial growth in an abnormal location. It's in the small intestine where there's not much action usually with bacteria. You are supposed to have trillions and trillions of bacteria in your large intestine that keep you healthy, that do a lot of different functions. And what we know about disease development, because what we now know from the human microbiome project and the research that's coming out every day is that the more diverse your microbiome is in your large intestine, the healthier um, you can be in general. So that's really the key. And the more you restrict your foods and the more, Uh, you only eat foods that you don't react to, the more difficult it becomes with species diversity.
2: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
0: Mm, so really the the flag for anybody listening to this podcast is if they're experiencing that uh, restriction in foods that they can tolerate, that that's, they need to Get onto it immediately. What what would your advice be um, for them to do? Is it to go and find a practitioner that they can work with that will understand how to treat this?
1: Yeah, and look, I have to say that um, my learning curve as a practitioner was also very steep when I first, um, you know, when I first learned about SIBO, I didn't really think about histamine, and I didn't really think about salicylate. This was early days, and. As my my understanding broadened, the more I started to realize there's so much going on on a mucosal level and microbiome level that we're affecting if we're also treating SIBO. So I had to just increase my understanding of it. I work with a nutritionist that has a good understanding of salicylates and food rotation and um, safe reintroductions and so forth. So I would definitely say work with somebody who... Understands the foods also, not just the protocol from a, um, from a medicine perspective, but also understands how to negotiate around your food restrictions and how to safely reintroduce foods. Mm, definitely. I think that's great advice. And while we're on the subject of
0: food, I'd love to talk about your SIBO biphasic diet protocol. So tell me why, like how that came about, how you developed that, and why.
1: And we got a lot out of it, haven't we, Rebecca? We have. <laughs> it's, been, it's been such a journey, and I'm so grateful to you for having written such beautiful books based on that because it just makes my life so much easier as a practitioner. So thank you for that. My pleasure. Um, So the way this came about was that when – um, and for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, it's a diet that's, that's divided into two phases, as the name implies. And um, initially, uh, it's it's been an evolution of the biphasic diet. But my frustration was that um, exactly what I just mentioned, I had patients that were very, very reactive, and I couldn't add the herbs in yet. So the diet is based on that when you first get diagnosed with SIBO, You start with phase one. Now, phase one is further divided into two categories. One is strict and one is less strict. Let's just keep it there. And you, so you start with less, with, sorry, with your strictest approach, which is very uh, much just protein and vegetables for for all intents and purposes. That's what it is. And as soon as you improve, so this could be three days, could be two weeks, could be a month, then you move into the less restrictive part of phase one so that gives the practitioner an opportunity to not yet jump into treatment as far as micro antimicrobials but more into um, gut balancers and that could be. Digestive support in the form of enzymes or hydrochloric acid or gut healers. If they have a lot of reactions like with salicylates, I would think about glycine or, um, you know, different kinds of nutrients that stabilize the mucosal membrane. And uh, in terms of digestive support, I would think of, I use a lot of herbal bitters, which are herbs that stimulate your own process of digestion. And so you have. you know, you have sort of a a nice, elegant way of of compartmentalizing your treatment without overwhelming your patient because we've all seen it. People come in and they leave with 20 products and that's not the kind of practitioner um, I aim to be. Sometimes it is intense and it has to happen, but only for a short period of time. That is not a long-term strategy to leave with tons and tons of products. So, Um, I usually like to do it in stages. And the first stage um, would be gut healing. And the second stage is more really uh, going after the remaining uh, remaining bacteria and yeast. And so by the first phase, when you're restricting your diet, you are already, by definition, starving some of these organisms. And then, when you going into the antimicrobial phase, which is phase two, the diet opens up a little bit, and you feel like you're in the land of the living again, and you're you're allowed certain um, certain nice foods like some grains and some fruit and perhaps some cheese. So life becomes a lot more tolerable at that point. And it's, I find that to be very effective to have divided the treatment like that. And so it really came out of necessity for me because just giving people a FODMAP diet just wasn't satisfying enough because it's it often doesn't work. And also for how long are you supposed to do this? So it gave me really a lot more control over what am I actually monitoring and when should I retest? So it really is very helpful that way.
0: There are several diets out there that people will commonly follow when it comes to SIBO treatment. Is this diet or protocol similar to any others?
1: It's similar, right? And and the universal sort of approach I'd say that that most uh, diets have in common is the low fermentable fiber. Um, aspect to the diet. Um, but how it's different is that it is divided into these two categories. The other aspect of that was, and this is somewhat open to, to um, discussion and some dispute, because Dr. Pimentel, a couple of years ago at the SIBO symposium, mentioned that um, he basically tells people to eat anything that would feed a bacteria whilst he's giving them rifaximin. You know, in all good conscience, I just, I'm a naturopathic doctor. I just can't do that because most of my people would flare up. So I just never have really, there were two reasons why I didn't want to do that. Number one, the risk of of flaring people up with other underlying issues. And the other reason was that if they have SIFO, they would definitely get worse on that approach. And his idea was, okay, you need to feed the bacteria whilst you're killing them. Otherwise they go into what's called senescence and that's like a dormancy. And I really haven't seen that be very much a factor in my treatment. I still do before and after testing and I get very good results. And so I decided not to do that. But that is one common, um, I'd say, argument out there is like, no, you should just eat potatoes and rice and sugar and all that just to feed the bacteria. And I, I would disagree with that approach. And I think, again, it probably comes down to uh, you
0: know the individual person as well. I know that when I started my SIBO treatment and went onto your protocol, I felt so much better by removing those foods that would have been feeding the bacteria. So I know for myself, I was really happy to be on your diet, even though it took a little bit of uh, mental planning of figuring out what I was going to eat. But gosh, I
1: felt the symptomatic improvement was worth it. Mm, That's great to hear. And and a lot of people tell that, you know, the thing is, now my practice has really come to a point where I mostly see people that have already been treated. So these are the tough, tough cases, right? So I I yearn for the days where somebody is just very easily treated with just diet alone, you know, I mean, it still happens, but it, it the tough cases definitely outnumber the easy cases these days. And those tough
0: cases, gee, they need your help because they're they're generally feeling pretty unwell, I
1: would imagine. yeah they really do. People are very sick, they're very limited in their in just their enjoyment of life. and um you know that's food is part of of the enjoyment of life. so I really, Uh, feel
0: for them. Exactly and it's one of the reasons why I put together the cookbooks was that I love cooking and I love sharing food with friends and family and food is such a joyous experience as well as being our nourishment and I wanted to remind people that even though where we can be limited and some people are more limited than others that there's still food glorious food that we can enjoy while we're going through our SIBO treatment.
1: Right that's right and uh, you know, I mean, we the, the other important point to that, though, is that there should be an end to treatment at some point, right? Is that some, well, let me rephrase that. There are some cases of SIBO where relapse is so common because there is a damage to this migrating motor complex, which is the normal motion in the small intestine that propels all, um, content of the small intestine towards the large intestine. So that's the normal cleansing wave. When that's damaged uh, from a past case of of food poisoning or uh, gastroenteritis, then it's very difficult because patients have to be on a maintenance diet. But the fact is that when you restrict fibers that are fermentable from the large intestine or from the microbiome that lives in the large intestine you are going to like they're not going to be happy either they're not don't have anything to eat then so i always endeavor to tell patients look even though this might take us some time there is an end inside or at least my my goal for you is that there is a time where you can open up your diet and you can enjoy certain foods that you are restricting right now because they're still healthy foods. I think that's great advice. It's not a life sentence. I hope not. You know, yeah. I hope not. So sometimes it's uh, it sure seems that way for people, but um, yeah, sometimes it's also relative, right? What you and I would think of uh, just a perfectly healthy diet is like a complete life-changer for other people who are eating processed foods and i mean i barely see people like that anymore but back when i lived in montana i say saw people that ate the standard american diet and so even if you just removed sugar they felt like a million bucks you know after two weeks so there's like a relative scale to um what we would consider food restrictions in our vocabulary i think
0: yeah, that's so true. We've talked a bit about this migrating motor complex and the, the cleansing wave through the uh, intestinal system. Are there things that you can take that help support that wave?
1: Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, the so the migrating motor complex is part of the normal nervous system in your small intestine that ensures that you don't get SIBO just by eating bacteria in food. So normally bacteria that are on food are supposed to be killed by the hydrochloric acid and by bile and by digestive enzymes. And when some of that is disrupted, you can develop SIBO. But um, more sinister, when you've had a case of gastroenteritis, like a really severe case of food poisoning that you remember, and you've never been well since, that's very indicative of having developed SIBO as a result of damage to this particular cleansing wave. And that has to happen. That occurs because um, of basically an autoimmune response where the body mistakenly attacks something called vinculin, which is part of the migrating motor complex, um, instead of the the toxin that the bacteria releases of the food poisoning. So in essence, it damages your your cleansing wave. And so you can't adequately flush out the remaining bacteria um, after you've eaten something. So if that's the case, then we use... Um, uh, medicines or herbs called prokinetics. And prokinetics basically just means they are uh, promoting the forward motion of the small intestine. So, you know, I wish I could say I have foolproof uh, herbs that work every time. Like, for example, with Alimax, it almost 90, I'd say more than 90% of the time it works for methane. But I don't have something like that for prokinetics and neither does conventional medicine. It's really an area that needs more research. I have, I have a lot of tools in my tool belt, but it doesn't work for everyone. So something will work 50% of the time. Um, then I have to try something else. And, uh, but generally speaking, uh, if I had something that was, that was foolproof for everyone, It's not even sure that everyone would need it because not everyone has SIBO because of food poisoning, right? So it's really only those that need to reset their migrating motor complex that um, require long-term use of prokinetics. But typically, my protocol does include herbal prokinetics, which could be ginger, um, we also use acetyl L-carnitine, which is just a nutrient, which is a component of some of the neurotransmitters that are uh, involved in peristaltic movement. Uh, we I use also uh, a combination of herbs that just stimulate the upper gut generally. There's also a product called um, Iberogast, which is pretty easy to find over the counter, which has some promise. I don't see it working every time. There's some thoughts on melatonin. There's some thoughts on uh, limonene. So there's lots of discussion in in the SIBO community, and we don't really have a consensus um, yet. So there are there are things that we will try, and and sometimes it's also probiotics that that seem to be helpful. So not there's not one size fits
0: all. And on the subject of probiotics. Uh, uh, should everybody have probiotics or is it, again, an individual case? And and when would you use a probiotic in treatment? Uh, There's a lot of discussion on the online forums about probiotics. I'd love your thoughts on them.
1: So the common misconception that I find around the subject of probiotics is that they will replace what you've lost in the large intestine, and that's just simply not true. If I were to take a sample of stool from the average person, um, the vast majority of bacteria would not be the bacteria that we find in probiotics, right? That's just a tiny sliver. And that's just because we haven't studied everything yet. So we don't have much in terms of, uh, being able to supplement with certain probiotics. So, but what we do know about probiotics is that they're really pretty powerful. So this is, you know, lactobacillus species, bifidobacterium species are, very what we call biological response modifiers, or they they modulate your immune response. And so I often use certain strains like lactobacillus plantarum, uh, paracaceae, those kinds of strains, if I see a lot of inflammation, for example. If I see a lot of large intestinal issue, I tend to favor more the bifido Uh, bacterium species so it gets really individualized with uh with the types of i have probably in my fridge in my clinic probably 10 to 12 different probiotics right now or complexes different different products and i'm playing around with different spores and things like that not playing (laughs) i'm experimenting but um so you know it's it is a lot more individualized but but the the take-home message is that we do know that they, through research, that they've, they've been studied actually a lot in IBS and SIBO is just a subset of IBS. So we will see certain aspects be, or certain strains be really helpful in certain symptoms. So for example, with cramping or with constipation or certain symptoms associated with SIBO, but I have not seen any data that conclusively tells me that using probiotics is a treatment for SIBO. Mm, that's that's very interesting.
0: And they're, they're, I've also uh, read a lot about prebiotics, so the food that you take or foods that you take before probiotics. Do you use prebiotics in your treatment?
1: Yeah, so prebiotics are actually not th- things that you take before taking probiotics. They're food for probiotics okay. right so so prebiotics like it used to be fos or fructo oligosaccharide and inulin and that's still used in a lot of probiotic formulas Th- those prebiotics are put into those formulas to ensure that those organisms actually survive right so the way it normally works is you're supposed to have a wide uh, variety of species in your digestive tract that ferment your fibers. It's meant that's a natural process that's meant to happen in your large intestine and fermenting those fibers <clears throat> frees something called short chain fatty acids. And those are prebiotics. They're all food for the, for your normally occurring bacteria there. So using prebiotics has been very controversial in the treatment of SIBO because we don't want to feed the wrong the bacteria that are in the wrong location. And there definitely is, um, I think that's a really valid argument. There is some thought, uh, and this is actually an area where Dr. Jason Horolak would, um, I think he's a wealth of knowledge in this regard, and he will be, he's one of the speakers at the SIBO summit in Melbourne and Sydney in October Uh, And he will be talking exclusively about probiotics and prebiotics. And I think there'll be a lot of myth-busting going on at the time. So I'm looking forward to that. But I do use very selective prebiotics under certain circumstances. So I don't use probiotics that contain prebiotics in my active treatment. I basically, during the active phase of my treatment, I don't recommend using uh, probiotic compounds that contain prebiotics for the simple reason you don't really want to promote the growth of those organisms. So I think there is a place for them afterwards, but I like to target them with more specific um, prebiotic substances such as um, oligosaccharide, which is a very specific uh, prebiotic that's targeting uh, bifidobacterium. So there are very specific prebiotics <clears throat> that um, that do certain roles. They don't just universally feed everything. So that's what that's where I think the movement will be more towards, or the research will go more towards that, rather than just you know <clears throat> using compounds that contain all sorts of prebiotics. And what's your view in terms of the future of
0: SIBO? Where, where do you think we're going to go with this uh, condition? Because it's still relatively unknown in Australia. It has a greater mm-hmm. awareness in uh, the states, but um, you know, relatively speaking, not many people know about it. What's your what's mm-hmm. your view on the future?
1: Well, you know, the one of the real gratifying events that's sort of taken place in my years of practice is. This massive research that's going on into the microbiome, and I would, you know, think of SIBO. One of the reasons it's got so much airtime is because it's part of that continuum and that spectrum. So what's happened is more and more focus on digestive disorders and the real important role that bacteria play in our health and in disease, as far as the digestive tract is concerned. The other th- aspect of that is that if you were if you've been diagnosed with SIBO. That's not the end. That's just the beginning. Because ideally, you want to find out what's caused SIBO. Because that's how you really become um, SIBO-free, is when you treat the underlying cause of SIBO. And that could be, some people never find out if it was because of food poisoning. But it could be because of adhesions, which is scar tissue that's built up in in the abdominal cavity due to surgery, removal of the appendix, or the gallbladder. So you can have scar tissue that just builds up inside the um, um, inside your abdomen that causes structural abnormalities of your digestive tract. Or it could be because of medication or because you have very high levels of stress. So I would invite your listeners to think about SIBO is caused by something. So continue to examine what is going on in your lifestyle that may have contributed to it. That leads me nicely onto my final uh, point, which is around when I
0: started to When I started this journey to health, I realised there were five key areas that I needed to address: Um, awareness, nutrition, movement, mindset, and lifestyle. I'd love your thoughts, Narala, on those five key areas, and if you think there are any others that um, we should be focusing on when we're looking at our own journey to health.
1: Well, um, I'd actually like to hear from you how you would classify those categories. You know, because I have my interpretation of those categories, and it would be nice to hear what you how you would summarize them in a, in a few seconds. Sure.
0: For, for me, awareness was around actually connecting, reconnecting with my body. So listening to my body, um, really taking note of what it was saying and not hiding or masking any of the symptoms with over-the-counter or prescription pharmaceuticals like I had for many years. Um, My nutrition, whilst I was pretty healthy in terms of what I ate, it wasn't necessarily the right nutrition for me at that point in time. And likewise, as I healed and recovered from SIBO, I needed to readdress my nutrition to support a healthy microbiome. Um, mm. my movement i had been pretty sluggish i'd been sick for such a long time that i really wasn't getting out and moving my body and that for me wasn't necessarily about um, going and pumping weights at the gym it was around just moving like getting out going for a walk and uh, and again that helped with the awareness because i was able to reconnect with how my body felt and the mindset piece was pretty important to me because i realized i was a pretty negative i was in a negative state when you feel sick for a long time. Um, You can often focus on all the negative things that are happening in your life rather than the positive things. So I had to start really actively focusing on positives. And to start with, they were small. It was the sun shining today.
1: Hooray. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I I think that's beautiful. I think that's, that's encapsulates it pretty well. I would add to that probably responsibility, right? Taking ownership and responsibility of your body, which means that even though you know i think we've been trained to some extent in the western in western medicine to abdicate our responsibility that we go to the doctor to get one pill for our headache and another for this and another for that so to really kind of take stock of how you've contributed to um the development of whatever happened in your life whether that's your health issues or relationship issues or however i think we need to really start being more responsible and active participants in all these aspects. And doesn't mean that we have to blame the victim, but it's more to say, you know what? Yeah, maybe I I really this time I'm really going to change my diet um, to reflect really those values and those um, those approaches I want to take in my life. So I think that's really well put. I do think that. obviously in my in my profession i do see people that have done already a lot of that and certainly people that have advanced cases have examined um uh, have examined a lot of that i'd also consider you know oftentimes i talk about emotional aspects or um <clears throat> people that are ruminators right people that are just sort of um have they think they've given up or or they think they have processed a certain event in their life and they really haven't. And that is contributing to um, their levels of stress in their body or their um, depression or their reaching for unhealthy foods. So really examining all parts of your life, if you have a chronic illness, I think is paramount because that is how you get true and lasting um, health benefits, not just on a physical level, but really on an emotional and spiritual level. That's so true. Thank you for that for
0: that uh, wonderful advice. Nerala, it's been fantastic having you on the Healthy Gut Podcast today. I have uh, really thoroughly enjoyed it. I've also learned a lot. Every time I think I know something, I learn more about it, which is just wonderful. How can people find you? If they'd like to learn more about you, your diet protocol um, or your testing facility, how can they find you?
1: Um I have a my personal website is neurologicoby.com this is my practice where I um see patients and so that's neurologicoby.com but to find out more about sibo and how to get tested for it and also do a free quiz or direct your practitioner to maybe sign up to get more educated about it you can go to sibotest.com that's s i b o t e s t.com And there's a lot of information there. And I do uh, regular webinars and regular uh, practitioner education seminars. There's also, as I've mentioned before, the SIBO Summit. Um, And I know you'll be there, Rebecca. So hopefully everyone listening can uh, join us there and meet you in person and meet us in person. Um, That'll be in... Sydney on October 10th and in Melbourne on um, October 8th. That's a whole day long in-person intensive primarily for practitioners <clears throat> and really sort of a crash course in, in how to treat SIBO. And we've got Dr. L- um, Allison Seebecker flying over all the way from Portland, Oregon. To join us, <clears throat> we've got Dr. Jason Horlack, as I've mentioned, who's really an expert in pre- and probiotic use. Myself and other guest speaker, we've got Alyssa Tate, who is a phenomenal uh, uh, physical therapist, talking about adhesions and sort of the structural uh, components of SIBO. And we have other guest practitioners uh, sharing their case uh, their case studies with us. So it'll be a really, really wonderful day of uh, everything you ever wanted to know what, about SIBO, but we're afraid to ask
0: kind of a day. <laughs> and I think what's really exciting about the SIBO Summit is that it is Australia's first SIBO event. So it's going to be a, a really great landmark event here in Australia to teach practitioners everything, like, they, like you say, everything they need to know about SIBO. Well, Nirala, thanks so much for your time today. And I'm sure my listeners have gleaned so much information from you from the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. So thank you very much for
1: your time. My pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: I hope you enjoyed Episode 4 of the Healthy Gut Podcast with Dr. Nirala Jacoby. If you would like to access the show notes from today's episode, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash herbal treatments. Now, because I love that my listeners of the Healthy Gut Podcast, I've got something special for you there as well. You can download a complimentary copy of my SIBO Breakfast e-cookbook, which follows Dr. Narala Jacobi's biphasic diet protocol. And it's full of um, really delicious breakfast recipes that you can enjoy whilst treating SIBO. If you've enjoyed today's episode, I'd love for you to leave me a rating and review in iTunes, and don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. I also love connecting with you on social media platforms, so you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and YouTube. So make sure you head over there and join us at The Healthy Gut Coming up in episode 5, I interview my lifesaver. I have found the most incredible naturopath here in Melbourne, Australia, whose name is Natalie Crutterdon. Natalie has over 20 years clinical experience and in my mind is one of Melbourne's best naturopaths when it comes to gut health with a particular focus on SIBO. So we talk about how she approaches SIBO treatment, what she commonly sees in her clinic And also why she has such a good success rate. There's people like myself that uh, get treated by Natalie and we do really well. So I look forward to seeing you at Episode 5 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or the podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. If you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast, you can make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. With thanks to Julian Pryor from J Podcaster for the production and editing of this podcast. To learn more, head to jpodcaster.com. We would also like to thank Belinda Coombs for the original music score. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut.